The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about Rishi Sunak's political makeover, hearing about the experience of meth addiction, and asking whether the Irish have lost their sense of humour. First up... Price caps are back in the news as the government is reportedly considering implementing one on basic food items. So what happened to the Rishi Sunak who admired Margaret Thatcher and Nigel Lawson? In her cover article this week, our economics editor Kate Andrews argues that the Prime Minister and his party have lost their ideological bearings. Kate joins the podcast now together with Spectator columnist Matthew Paris, who remembers the last time price caps were implemented and writes about it in this week's column. Kate, in your cover piece this week, you ask, what kind of conservative is Rishi Sunak? Is the answer no longer clear? I don't think it is so clear. I think even just a year ago, there was a very obvious answer. This was a fiscally hawkish chancellor who stayed awake at night worrying about what was happening to the public finances. He was deeply frustrated to be overseen by a heavy spending prime minister, Boris Johnson. They were constantly uh, sparring behind the scenes over borrowing and spending. Rishi Sunak was one of the only politicians in this country to see the inflation crisis coming. He, He understood those basic economic laws better than essentially anybody else. And he was willing to talk about trade-offs. And we saw it in the leadership election last year. He wasn't willing to promise all these tax cuts, all this borrowing, all this spending like Liz Truss was. Ultimately, he was right, and that landed him in number 10. Since he's been in number 10, we still see him making trade-offs, but they seem to be skewed towards very left-leaning policy. The tax burden has gone up under Rishi Sunak, higher than it was under Boris Johnson. You have more people being dragged into the higher rate of tax under Rishi Sunak. We now know that the rise to corporation tax was not a one-off emergency proposal to get COVID spending under control. It's really a core staple of the Sunak agenda. He wants to prove that corporation tax isn't what gets in higher revenue, it's actually business investment. So what we see now is a prime minister who's still very honest about trade-offs, but when he's asked to make them, we're getting some quite labor-friendly policies, certainly on the tax front. It's not obvious to me that Sunak would have chosen to design it that way. It's not even obvious to me that he's making a pure conscious decision here to create Sunakism around these heavy spending, heavy taxing policies. But a lot of small decisions are adding up to a big picture. And that big picture is the solid return of high tax and spend Toryism. Matthew, would you agree that, that Rishi is implementing, as she calls it, labour-friendly policies? I mean, your column this week focuses particularly on the price cap for basic foods, which you are very against in your column. But do you agree with Kate that there is a bigger picture here regarding Rishi Sunak's policy since he became prime minister? On on price caps, 
you, you may say I'm very against it. I, th- I, I simply think it's pointless and silly and it will come to nothing. And it indicates an un, unwelcome knee-jerk response in a Conservative government that uh, what Churchill called happy thoughts should uh, just be translated in, into legislation. On, on Rishi Sunak, I, I don't buy the idea that he has moved uh, to the left. Uh, there are, government is not following massively high-spending uh, policies, ex- except in, in areas where it has no choice, and that those who don't like the government spending should say which bits of the government spending should go. I also completely disagree with the idea that uh, taxing people is somehow a left-wing thing to do. Um, Good conservative governments, in the way that I used to understand conservatism, don't believe in governments borrowing a lot of money. And if the government needs to spend more than it has, a good conservative believes that you have to raise taxes. And I don't see anything left-wing in that. I I think the danger is different. It's not of a sort of lurch to the left. It's of a being pushed very gradually, in a slightly high-spending sort of direction, the sort of creep that happens in any government if there there isn't a, a, a clear sense of direction from the top. And I think what Rishi Sunak urgently needs to do is indicate a direction, be bold, be clear. And I think it would be a good direction. I think his instincts lie that way. I think he's just being a bit timid. We are now living through the highest tax burden in 78 years. I would heavily dispute that this hasn't dramatically changed. It has shot up. And, you know, I completely agree with you, Matthew, that that we should look at what that's being spent on and what we need to roll back. But let's remember, this is a, a, a prime minister who, when he was chancellor, I think was very clear that things like the NHS, if it was going to get more money, that had to be linked to reform. And yet you see his chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, giving the service billions and billions more without any talk of reform. Rishi Sunak was somebody who used to think that the welfare system genuinely needed to be reformed. And he was very adamant that he was going to make changes to universal credit to make it pay to work. But under this government, his policies are expected to see the welfare bill surge by 16% over the next five years to $330 billion. We are talking not about small sums of money leading to slightly higher taxes, slightly higher spending. We are talking about a state in which the prime minister and his government at the moment can't seem to point to any area where they would cut. They're actually just adding more. If we look at the last budget, they decided to add 30 free hours of childcare for, for every parent coming in in a few years' time. That's another $5 billion. My point is they're doing that instead of cutting taxes. They're doing that instead of other reforms. You can make the case, but I wonder, and what I write about in this week's cover, is if you're essentially doing labor light policy and no one really knows what you stand for, no one really knows what you believe, why aren't you simply going to vote in the Labour Party? If you're taking all of their ideas in the next election, it makes sense just to vote for the party that you know believes it. I have always admired that Rishi Sunak is not willing to pretend that you can just borrow and cut tax and you can basically have free money. I'm looking at what he is spending that money on, and it is not at all obvious to me anymore that this is a Tory party that's interested in getting the size of the state under control. They're actually very, very happy to expand it, very often on programs that they're not willing to reform. What do we think should be cut? Well, 
I think asking a libertarian that question is quite different from asking the Tory party that question. But I mean, you know, you can point to billions in healthcare, you can point to billions in welfare, you can point to billions across the board that are being used deeply inefficiently, and I actually think in many cases are harming the people that they're most supposed to be helping. That's not something that this Tory party wants to talk about anymore. Matthew, you say in your column that you feel ashamed that the Tories' intellectual calibre should have sunk so low as even to contemplate the kind of economic literacy of the price caps. What would you be advising the Prime Minister to do if he was speaking to you about inflation? If he thinks that supermarkets are making excessive profits, he should tax supermarkets, a windfall tax on supermarkets, and put that money into helping the people whom it is suggested could be helped by asking supermarkets to cut their prices on on basic items. That, That won't work. Do you think windfall tax would play well with the, the voters he's trying to attract? Windfall tax always plays well with, with, with voters, at least the polling seems to suggest that they like the idea of that, that. That is not necessarily an argument for a windfall tax. I'm not sure whether the supermarkets are making excessive profits. I, I have um, always suspected that there's much more of a cartelization going on between the supermarkets than there ought to be. And in the United States, uh, they, they would have tackle this by trying to break up what is, I think, an unspoken cartel. I I worry particularly about the supermarket's power over producers, particularly over farmers. And of course, trying to stop supermarkets raising prices on things like milk could end up just just hitting the farming industry. Kate, I wonder what you would make of the argument, perhaps to defend uh, the Prime Minister, that when he became Chancellor, he became Chancellor in an extremely difficult scenario, having to find the money to fund the expense of lockdowns uh, in a pandemic that no one could have predicted, directly followed by the war in Ukraine, which requires even more spending. So do you think there's the case to be made that given these sort of drastic circumstances, he's been forced into an agenda that perhaps does go against his instincts that, that Matthew spoke about, and it's not something that he wants to pursue for the long term. Yes, I think it's a strong argument. Rishi Sunak is always having to clean up other people's economic messiness. uh, And he's always having to deal with external factors that are largely out of his control. And, you know, I think there's a lot of sympathy to be had with him when he was chancellor and even becoming prime minister after the the nerve-wracking incident with borrowing costs last year after Liz Truss's mini budget. You know, he had again, he had to make tough choices. The difficult for Rishi Sunak now is that he is in charge and he can't really pass the buck to anybody else. And it's one thing to say, gosh, if I were in charge, I'd do things differently. But we are now seeing what he's doing. And again, I would stress, I'm not convinced this is the agenda that Sunak wants to be identified with. But he is the one making the decisions and he's making more and more high tax, high spend decisions. And ultimately those add up and it comes down on him. And I also think some of those decisions are just extremely short sighted. I mean, he is convinced that by raising corporation tax, he can still get in the same amount of revenue. I think that is disputed. That's going to be fascinating to see if that's true, given the fact that in the 2010s, a lower corporation tax led to higher revenue. But also on these windfall taxes, you've got Harbor Energy, you've got Total Energies, uh, which are talking about 
divesting from the North Sea because of things like the windfall tax. They're taking such a major hit to profit, they're actually hemorrhaging jobs. If you think about this from such a short-term perspective, some of these taxes are really not going to make the Treasury wealthier within a longer period of time. They're probably going to make us all a lot poorer. We need that investment. We need to be thinking about the medium term. And I actually fear we're going to be driving a lot of that away for very short-term gain by getting the revenue up. Kate and Matthew, thank you very much. Next, what is it like to be addicted to meth? And is it possible to turn your life around after that? Ava Gader has managed it, and she writes powerfully about her experience in this week's issue. She joins us now with drugs counsellor and Spectator World contributor, Kevin Dahlgren. Ava, could you start by telling our listeners how your addiction to meth started? Well, um, it actually started when I was very young. I was still in school. I was about 17, and I was always struggling a lot to keep my grades up, to pass exams. And um, then it just happened that at a party, somebody offered me speed, just regular amphetamine. And um, and then I all of a sudden, I had this energy, and I was like, wow, I could really use this to study in school. And I did. Hmm. And then how did that, from that first experience, how did that uh, develop into a... Uh, full-on meth addiction um over over many years you know it wasn't like an instant thing um a lot of people think you use it and you instantly become addicted but it's a very slow process you know it goes from doing it on the weekends and then thinking hey i could use some of this energy to actually function better during the week and then so you start using it during the week and then um very slowly it becomes an everyday thing yeah and you you spoke there about about how you get the sort of energy from it I mean, one thing that struck me about your piece was that you actually write about some of the perhaps productive things that, that come initially from, from using, that you do get this energy. It does make you uh, feel more, more energetic. So from that, how does it develop into something much nastier? So for me, it took a very long time. I think it's it's really different on like an individual basis. I think it's different for everyone. For some people, it might very quickly go from being productive to unproductive. But for me, it took a very, very long time. For years, I was using it to work. I was using it to, you know, perform whatever tasks I had to do. And then um, only over time, um, it just, it became something other than that. I think it's just like you use it as a crutch to uh, work, but then it holds you back from actually developing like good habits and like a, a routine and stuff like that. So then after a while, it just, um, it gets kind of out of control. Yeah. And did your, did your, uh, your family or friends or your, your boyfriend at the time, I mean, did they notice that you were starting to go downhill? Did they, did they try to intervene and, and help you? Um, so over the years, uh, people did notice now and then. My family, not so much. I was pretty good at hiding it from them. Um, the the person closest to me, my sister, she was really the only one who noticed, and she always, um, you know, was worried about me. What want me to stop? Hmm. And then finally, uh, how how did you manage to stop in the end? So I I was very privileged to be able to move here to move to America from I was living in in Germany for a while. I've moved back and forth a lot during this, so it's kind of complicated. But um. I moved to a different country than I was living before. I was living in Germany before I moved to America. And um, I was able to live with my now boyfriend's family who took care of me and just provided me with an environment where I could actually finally, you know, have the peace to get off the drugs. And Kevin, I want to bring you you in now to, to the conversation, if I may. You're based in Portland, where you've been working as a drug and alcohol counselor for many years. I wonder, is Ava's story, is it... Is it a very familiar one for you? 
it's absolutely familiar. In fact, I'll even share my, my little brother was on the streets of Portland, Oregon with a meth addiction. I had no idea either. I didn't notice. I didn't understand enough about the drug when I was younger, but he ended up on the streets. He started using for the same reasons. And he told me the very first few times you use, it was an incredible experience. And what he did from that point on is to chase it. He wanted to chase that original feeling and he never got there again and eventually led him to the streets living under a bush. And what he said about meth for him, his experience was it made him feel closer to God. He said it was such a powerful euphoric feeling. It was unlike anything he'd ever experienced and he couldn't stop, but he didn't see it as a problem. He thought it was actually helping him. You know, he was reading, he was staying awake, he was doing his doing chores, cleaning the house. So for the first month or so, it, it was a very positive experience for him. And then eventually it wasn't. He ended up on the streets. He stole from me, stole from the family. But much like in Ava's uh, experience, he was a little lucky too because I, I got him off the streets and helped and moved him into my apartment. And that was his day to sobriety was the day he moved into my apartment. He's been clean and sober ever since. So in many ways, he was lucky too because he had family support still. But you should know that family estrangement is extremely common for an addict because nine times out of 10, this addict will lie, cheat, and steal from the people they love the most. And it's difficult to sometimes forgive that. I forgave it. I brought my brother in. And so, you know, but there's a lot of others that are just left out there to languish and die because they basically burned every bridge in the world and people stopped uh, trying to help them or caring, sadly. Hmm. And Kevin, how does uh, the addiction you see from people who are addicted to meth, how is that similar or how is it different as well from the, the other types of drug abuse that you work with? I'm thinking in particular of the fentanyl crisis in the United States, which you've written about very well for the Spectator World edition and which hasn't really affected the UK to the same extent it has uh, America's West Coast. I, I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and, and how a fentanyl addiction might compare to meth addiction. Well, for one thing, fentanyl has almost completely taken over all other drugs, like almost 100%, like even marijuana, like literally every person I know on the streets now uh, is using uh, fentanyl. Uh, they started by mixing the two, right? You know, like you would sprinkle the fentanyl powder on meth, marijuana, heroin, just to enhance it, make it stronger, help it last longer. But eventually people just went to straight fentanyl. And, you know, and fentanyl is 50 times more addictive than heroin and it's cheaper than it's ever been. Three years ago, a pill averaged about seven, eight dollars. And now it's down to two plus dollars for a one pill of fentanyl, which will usually last a good hour or two, depending on your addiction. So what's, well, fentanyl is far more deadlier than other drugs because it's so strong and because the opioid blockers aren't really effective because it takes five, six, seven tries. And this is why we have in my city and others around me, the, uh, the highest number of overdoses in history is this year due to fentanyl. So it's, it's definitely right now we're in the middle of this terrible epidemic. Hmm. Well, Ava, you, you spoke just now on this podcast about how you've moved around a bit between Europe and America uh, over your time as a addict. I wonder, from your perspective, how did you see 
uh, I suppose, the American drug scene differing between Britain and between and, and Europe more generally uh, and America? And equally, how did you see the, the, the difference in how addiction is handled? in those two parts of the world? Funnily enough, I, I don't, I think there are more similarities than there are differences. Um, the, the drugs are different. That's really the only thing. The drugs are different, but people do use them in similar ways. I mean, and it, it's very much a class thing. Like working class people in all countries that I've lived in have used amphetamines um, to be able to be more productive. That's something I see everywhere. Um, I see opiates used everywhere with the same kind of lifestyle and consequences around it. But, I mean, I guess the treatment is a little bit different. I, well, actually, I think in all countries I've lived in, which is Germany, England, and America, there, haven't, there hasn't been enough treatment options for people. Everywhere I've seen people struggle to get help. And that's, that's really been the same in all places, even though, you know, maybe Europe has a slightly better reputation for social services. Um, still everywhere, people were not able to get therapy. People were not able to get, you know, the mental health support that they needed to get off drugs. Well, Kevin, on the point about treatment options you, you've written in the past about what you see as the failings of America's policy response what are those major failings as you as you see them well like an Eva said we have a serious lack of treatment and detox options for people who are using detox is the first step to getting clean off of fentanyl for sure because you're physically addicted and I live in the state of Oregon and we're currently ranked last place, right? We have the worst <laughs> everything. But one thing the United States has done and something I have not supported is we're really been big on decriminalizing drug use. And what they say about that is we've decriminalized it because we're going to add more treatment and we don't want to jail people for being addicts. And I would agree with that. I don't want to jail addicts. The problem is, is we pass these decriminalization bills, measures, but then we don't have we don't have the treatment offers uh, options available, and so what we've basically done is we've created this open air drug scene in all our major West Coast cities. I mean, we you walk through Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, it is a zombie land. It is just people knotted out everywhere, and it's just and the crime has gone through the roof because of the desperation. People are desperate for their next fix. And they can't work in any traditional type job anymore, so they have to boost. They have to do whatever is necessary to get their next fix. And so the decriminalization of drugs has been really devastating. It definitely has ruining my state, but also they've done this in uh, other major cities around the United States. I think about it this way. What's the worst thing you can do to a person who's, who's lost all critical thinking and rational thought? Giving them a free pass to use as much as they want. These are people that need guidance. These are people who need direction, not like, hey, this is Disneyland, go nuts. And that's crazy. I mean, it's one thing if people weren't dying, I guess, but like we have a record number of overdoses and deaths. So this is just really devastating. So there's been a lot of debate in my country about the value of decriminalization of drugs. I don't personally see it and I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. I think it's actually ends up killing. It's really just killing people. Gosh. And Ava, just just finally, you've been clean now for three years, you say, in your piece. Do you still, even all these years later, do you still have difficult moments from your addiction? Um, not really. So the, the the main recovery kind of happened in the first year. That's the year where I most physically felt, you know, still the after effects of addiction, you know, and my energy levels were low and it was it was kind of hard to live. And I still, you know, had cravings for it and wanted to do it again. But 
ever since then, my life has just changed so much. My habits have changed so much. It just wouldn't fit into the structure of my life anymore. And it's just not something that I ever really think about or want to do. I've just developed so far away from those habits. Well, Ava and Kevin, thank you very much for joining me. And if you'd like to read more from Kevin, he has a substack called Truth on the Streets, which is about his work tackling homelessness and addiction in Portland, Oregon. And finally, have the Irish lost their famous sense of humour? Melanie McDonough thinks so, and she writes in this week's magazine that the country of the fighting Irish, the drinking Irish, the self-deprecating humorous Irish has turned into a kind of parody of liberal authoritarianism. She joins the podcast now, along with the Irish comedian and impressionist Oliver Callan. Melanie, you write about the decline of Irish humour. What has happened to make you think that it is declining? Um, well, you have made a fool of me by bringing on the one man in Ireland who actually is a funny Irish comedian. So um, <laughs> uh, can I just qualify at the outset <laughs> what I was going to say? We've only got people like Daryl O'Brien over here, as you see, Oliver, so it's not quite the same. We don't get the quality over here. I think um, very they, funny, they... Daryl O'Brien. May I interject at this stage? <laughs> you work together, do you? <laughs> None of your flattery will work here, Melody. Yeah, yeah. No, I, don't, I don't know. You comedians must hang together. Yeah, um, so um, uh, it was that flipping thing about um, labelling bottles of drink like um, uh, like cigarettes that prompted it. It, um, it was premised on the notion that, um, A, we didn't already know, and B, that alcohol was something that you could only drink in those quantities that were likely to bring on cirrhosis of the liver, that grown-up people weren't capable, actually, of having the odd glass without actually going to the point where you would end up um, as a paid-up alcoholic. And um, as I said, the, the nanny state just wasn't in it. So it's a sense of fun as well as a sense of humour that you think is... Uh, yes, and the sort decline. of um, the general attributing people with um, the degree of intelligence to work out these things for themselves. I don't think anybody yes. in Ireland of any age is in any illusions about um, the alcohol being actually good for you, but um, I think that we're all capable of registering the nuances um, within that. So um, what, what about um, the other point to your piece, that there's a sort of um, self-seriousness that you see in Irish culture now uh, and Irish society? I wonder if you could e explain to our listeners a little bit more about, about that. Well, that quality of kind of um, taking yourself terribly seriously, otherwise known as being very much up yourself, um, is, I think, everywhere. I mean, the little exchange at the Oscars, I think, was a case in point. I think um, Oliver may have taken exception to that, but um, uh, the host made some uh, silly little remark about um, sort of five Irish nominees uh, that um, raises the chances of a fight on stage, which um, once upon a time, people would have shrugged off. I mean, sort of, he's trying to be funny, good for him. But now it's a cue for people to call out racism. So, sorry, I, I want to take back that verb. I hate calling out to identify racism and get cross about it. Uh, so that idea that you're taking everything terribly seriously and above all, you're taking yourself terribly seriously is the antithesis of what um, Irish human used to be about. Oliver, what do you think? Do you think it's fair to say that the Irish have somewhat lost their sense of humour? Well, first of all, um, uh, thank you to, for the flattery of Melanie to say that I'm a funny person, but ultimately I'm a, a an Irish comedian none of the spectator readers or indeed listeners uh, have ever heard of. So, uh, so Nonsense, killing leprechauns will be on everybody's <laughs> Killing leprechauns was, was BBC Sounds podcast where I endeavoured to explain Ireland and Irishness to a, a British audience using British comedians as the kind of foil and uh, as the yardstick for the level of uh, knowledge. Because I think comedians should know stuff about the wider audience 
audiences and if they're not kind of doing Irish material to a British audience then that means they're not really thinking about us very much at all. I suppose the, the premise of when do the Irish stopping funny has to be kind of examined from the, the point of view of when did we start being funny? Because Ireland was a very unfunny place for uh, most, if not practically all of the last century and all of our, our, a lot of our, most of our independence, certainly, because we came out of this, like the British people may not remember or understand that Ireland went through Victorian period, just like you did, which is obviously a very austere, uh, buttoned up, uh, sexually fearful society. And uh, we emerged out of that. But because we got independence in the 1920s and we sort of um, kept the Victorian period going for a bit longer, up until probably the 1990s, if we're honest about it, when we finally legalised things like divorce and decriminalised homosexuality and allowed funny people be on the television in a funny, provocative fashion. I'm thinking of Tommy Tiernan and great comedians like that who rose to prominence in the 1990s and he's kind of like our bard. But um, that's not true, is it? Because um, all the funniest people in Ireland actually inhabited um, that slightly repressed, very censorious sort of society. Uh, Flann O'Brien, who was the funniest um, Irish author I can think of, could not have flourished as he did um, nowadays. He required that degree of... um, Yeah, there there were funny people, but were the Irish themselves funny? Yes, I think so. I mean, um, I can... when they were being censored and so on, we didn't exactly rise up and take to the streets and say, no, we must protect the funniness because we're funny people. And I don't think, I don't think we kind of were all that funny. We certainly produced very funny people. Yeah, but it was I mean, Brendan Bean was they were exceptions. Yeah. They were exceptions. Well, I don't know. I think um, Brendan Bean was a product, as I say, of an Ireland that was um, rather censorious and was very repressed because the the human impulse is to react to to any element of um, repression or censorship and and to make it funny. I mean, there was a great fan O'Brien joke about all the people who are in a tremendous sulk in Irish literary clubs because they weren't on the index of forbidden books and they were practically paying people to get on the index of forbidden books because it would obviously be um, brilliant for trade. So um, I I think it actually required quite um, a religious society north and south of the border, quite a censorious society in order for for the human comedy to flourish because you've got something to send up and you've got something to react against. Whereas now, if all you're reacting against is the kind of um, contemporary sort of shibboleths about... Um, uh, sexuality and gender and all the boring stuff, then um, th- there really isn't the same environment for either people or, or professional comedians or indeed um, the vaguely comic writers to give of their best. The, the example you've pointed out is the fact that we're going to slap all these health warnings on every alcohol product from uh, 2026, I think it is, onwards. And the fact that the European Commission are obviously going to be the first people to examine this and will, may well tell us that we can't do that. So there's kind of a, exactly. a, a Brexit lesson in yes. that, isn't there? There is a great irony going, uh, you know, Britain breaks free to, to stop the EU telling it what to do. And then Ireland's kind of going, uh, here you go, Mr. EU, we're going to do this thing. I dare you to stop us now. And, they're, they're, <laughs> and watch them do it. Yeah, yeah, there must have been. But there's a kind of a gag in the fact that, uh, you know... The most Europhile uh, country on earth is actually uh, trying to pick a fight with the European Commission. Yes, we are. We And we are very much a Europhile country. We're about to be told what to do or, or not. But... Uh, uh, we're going to we're going to test our new relationship with the European Union since they supported us so strongly uh, as we worked hard to get, you know to keep the, the the borders open here in Ireland. But I suppose that there's a kind of a gag is what I was coming to is that uh, British people may not understand you know the absolute disaster that is our health system in Ireland. I know the NHS isn't going so well since COVID, but it is still probably you know 
uh, streets and centuries ahead of um, the Irish Health Service, which has been referred to literally as Angola for uh, famously by by people running the health service. And uh, instead of kind of, you know, sorting out the issues that really need to be sorted out, which are all to do with huge amount of management, we spend more money than per capita than any other country in Europe and still really shoddy people, every basic level of healthcare, even trying to get a, a GP's appointment is very difficult in parts of the country. A lot of them are closed to new patients and so on. But instead of fixing anything, we're kind of slapping labels on alcohol just to rile everybody up. But we haven't lost our sense of humour about that because as a population, there's a little bit of a collective eye roll going on to the extent that it isn't really a hugely hotly debated topic because I think most people are sort of thinking, Asher, that'll never happen. You know, that, that's, that's well, a great totally idea. You can think that all the time happen. and then it does happen. And then you say, oh, <laughs> that's I that's that's what was I thinking of? You know, you do have a point because when we became the first country in the world to completely ban smoking in pubs in 2004 or five, around then, we literally thought until the day itself, that'll never happen. And then, and then you find yourself freezing to death in the cold. Got in line at midnight on the very day and that was it. It's all over. As and when it came the home, they really did the, mean it. Yeah. yeah, they really did mean it. All the smokers are having a lot of fun and so on outside. Now, as to whether trying to put health warnings and so on on, on alcohol in such a dr- draconian or drastic fashion, I should say, whether that's a kind of an overly liberal thing to do that's sort of su- suppressing our funny bones. I bring you to Russia, which had one of the worst alcohol and smoking problems in the entire world and one of the most radical reforms they did to reduce the amount of Russians uh, drinking because I think there was a great statistic which I once enjoyed where 75% of something of all men who died in Russia were completely drunk at the time of So they didn't death. feel a thing oh, kind of, didn't feel a thing was We kind of, die that way <laughs> But they had a, 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 a wogeous a dreadful problem with alcohol and uh, the liberal hero that is Vladimir Putin launched this massive crackdown on, on alcohol and tobacco. It's one of the reasons where we laugh at Putin on horseback, shirtless. But that was kind of almost part of a, a stay healthy campaign for the Russians. <laughs> Except which, that it looked uh, like the Bulbra, seen the yeah. fact that yeah, we should have we should have noticed there was a gag in the fact that he was carrying a rifle at the time and then he's going to bring his health campaign all the way through, you know, the sovereignty of Ukraine and so on. Uh, but... Uh, but I'm just I'm pointing that out that even in Russia, Vladimir Putin recognised that alcohol in societies where alcohol is a huge problem needed to have some sort of um, dramatic health controls, which worked spectacularly. I don't have the statistics to hand uh, because I'm loath to Google Russia, <laughs> but it was dramatic. I remember. I think if we anyone who kind of remembers that time, this is kind of noughties, and in the space of a couple of years, um, he managed to reduce the amount of people smoking and drinking vodka and their own hooch that they were making. So you know, in the scheme of things, there's something good about putting a health uh, warning on alcohol it's going to it's obviously got a long time to go before it becomes law it has to go through daddy EU first of all so it'll probably get watered down to something there's already an embarrassing degree of control over alcohol in Ireland. I mean, it's really shaming when I go to the local supermarket and I'm 10 o'clock in the morning and I want to get my bottle of this, that and the other. And um, I can't do it. You have to come back at, I can't remember, is it 11 or 11.30 before you're actually allowed? It's half, ten, half past now. 10 and midday on a Sunday. I'm glad to say that they respect the whole <laughs> I know the off, Until people I know come the back from mass. Hours off my heart. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, anyway. Melanie. Yeah, and um, this is for grown-ups. I mean, it's not for um, kind of um, adolescents and teenagers. This, this is for grown-up members of society. Oliver, can I ask you about the leprechaun? Because you host a podcast yes. called Killing Leprechauns, and this week, where the Spectator illustrates our piece with a picture of a leprechaun kicking a barrel of Guinness, and, and Melanie mentions in her piece that Christian Adams, the cartoonist, got in trouble for depicting. A leprechaun fairly recently. Where do you stand on leprechauns? Is it, is it an offensive way of referring to the Irish? 
No, uh, I mean, because this was a podcast that was aimed at the British audience, um, we had to put something that was going to be very identifiable Irish. And um, I think the leprechaun was a great symbol of, I suppose, the stereotypical version of Irish people is the little fella dressed as green. And it dates from the kind of Victorian, again, punch cartoon versions of Irish that existed in the British establishment of that period, a kind of post-Irish, late 19th century uh, view. And so the idea of the podcast was to ask these comedians and we, we kind of invited them in and said, look, you can, be, you can give us the stereotypes because we're going to kill them off with facts and so we were killing the leprechauns we were killing the stereotypes I mean there half of them were terrified because I was calling I was calling Irish people collectively paddies you're allowed to say that all the time yeah we say it all the time when you're down in, in you know, particularly Bondi Beach in Australia where lots of us emigrated after the crash 2008 post 2008 period it was you know oh my god Bondi Beach is just full of paddies and also you know it really does seem like half the population is literally named Paddy and uh, <laughs> Patrick has so many different super cases. Pat, PJ, Paddy, Podrick, Podge. Uh, I could go on and on. Pod, uh, there, there's Pad as well. Pat, I haven't even mentioned. Porrick. So many. That they're Paddy, Paddy, Paddy. I suppose it was Mick is where it certainly felt like, oh, no, that's definitely from building sites of the 70s and 80s. I know my own uncles who went to. But um, with Christian, um, I don't, I honestly don't understand. This is Christian Adams, the um, Evening Standards brilliant cartoonist um, whom I sit oh, yeah. opposite when I'm in the opposite. Oh, right. Right. And so um, an abs- a man of absolutely upright views in every respect. But he did um, this uh, absolutely harmless, I thought, little um, skit of Jeremy Hunt and Boris dressed as leprechauns capering around with no backstop and a rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it. And I would have thought, looking at that, that the joke was entirely on Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. I cannot for the life of me see why people could get on their high horse about it. Well- and I suppose you you mentioned the, the Jimmy Kimmel thing at the Oscars where, you know, you had Brendan Leeson and Colin Farrell in the audience and it's like, oh, we're going to have a more fighting, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, and they haven't even started and, drinking yet. Yes, that was the line yeah, at the Oscars. Exactly. Line, yeah. And I think it was just, we've it, it's always comes up to, comes to the Irish person watching this abroad. We're a small country. Uh, we watch everything that goes on in Britain in a way that they, that isn't, um, that isn't reciprocated. Uh, it, it's a similar relationship to how the Brits look at America and America doesn't really understand what's going on in Britain. They don't even know what Brexit is and when a, a late show host is referring to Britain they kind of go oh we go for tea with the Queen and uh, you know the kind of uh, beef eaters and so the royal family and drinking cups of tea and I don't must feel really lazy going there was more to us surely they know more that they could add an actual joke to and Jimmy Kimmel is just you know ponies uh, f- and fighting Irish people particularly with Colin Farrell in the audience a recovering alcoholic <laughs> who's about the most sober person ever Ireland has ever produced uh, it just seemed to be completely um uh, off colour from that. just lazy I suppose from that point of view and the leprechaun thing where you know it's a 150 year old joke at this stage it's like you must know something more about us than that even if the joke is like oh you have to check under our car every morning to see you know if it's safe to drive to work is nearly more acceptable than the <laughs> leprechaun because it requires a little bit of an extra leap uh, of, imagi- of imagination Melanie and Oliver thank you very much for joining us and that's everything this week as ever, if you've enjoyed the episode, do pick up an issue of the magazine to read everything we've discussed. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.